for the doctor for asthma, he is tested. So he's a little bit done with those. Um, cool. So um, obviously the last, uh, last week I talked about this corporate term of languishing uh, the pandemic. Um, there is this feeling and then how we can get around that with um, abiding because, you know, Jesus calls us to take up his yoke. Um, it is easy and light and we're invited to learn his unforced rhythms of grace. Um, when we yoke ourselves to Jesus, we're taking up positions of disciples or apprentices. You can kind of choose which term you like. Um, I quite like the term apprentice because it is that idea of learning, um, but obviously disciple is that term we use a whole lot more in church. Um, last night, I watched with Nathan um, Hacksaw Ridge. I don't know if you've seen Hacksaw Ridge, but it's a story of Desmond Doss, and um, I've left my phone. I'll just grab that. Um, Desmond Doss, he was a Seventh-day Adventist in World War II, and he felt compelled to um, enlist in the war. But he would not fight on Saturdays, uh, and he would not, you know, at boot camp, whatever, that he wouldn't, you know, work on a Saturday, and he would not bear arms. Um, and so if you've seen the movie, he goes through kind of this horrible time at, um, I guess I don't call it boot camp, what do they call it when the soldiers are, anyway, uh, learning. Uh, it goes through this real horrible time, and there's kind of this idea, like, how can we trust you in war? How can we trust you to save our lives if you're not prepared to bear arms? Um, and the movie's incredible, and at the end, it says that um, he saved 75 lives. Like, he just, and, and there's a little clip of him in real life, and he said, he just kept asking God, just one more, just give me one more. Um, and he saved the lives of 75 soldiers, you know, the point where they're sort of left on the battlefield to die. He kept going back and back and back. And... Um, it said here, so I was reading about him last night. I always do that when I watch a movie that has kind of a bit of a real-life element to it. And it said that two weeks later, Doss was in a battle again a few miles away from the escarpment when a Japanese grenade landed in a foxhole containing Doss and some of his patients. So he was a medic. Uh, he attempted to kick the grenade away, but it detonated. Doss ended up with deep shrapnel lacerations all down his legs. He treated himself for shock and dressed his own wounds rather than having another medic emerge from safety to help. Five hours later, someone finally arrived with a stretcher. When Doss saw a soldier in need, he rolled off, surrendered his stretcher, and started patching up his comrade. While Doss was waiting for more help to arrive, a sniper suddenly shot and shattered all the bones in his left arm. And it says here that the director, Mel Gibson, I didn't know that he was the director, uh, left that part out of the movie because he felt that it was so heroic that audiences wouldn't even believe that it really happened. Um, but watching this movie, I was just really taken like this young man had this call on his life that he felt was a call on his life, not to take lives, but to save lives. And, like, he followed that to the extreme end. Like, so extreme that, you know, even Hollywood's like, we can't put this in the movie because people will think it's not true. So, um, yeah, so this morning I'm talking a little bit about what it is to be called. Didn't know that when I watched the movie last night, so that was quite cool. Um, because there's a crisis in this pandemic. Well, the pandemic has, has exposed this crisis in us as the church, this crisis of non-discipleship. You know, we understand what it means to be saved by grace, um, we, you know, to be made right with Jesus, but we don't always engage with what it means to be sanctified, to become more like Jesus. You know, our heart's being transformed. Can we look back and go, see, like, here's where Jesus has formed me over the course of my walking with him. Um, so a bit of a history lesson. Um, there's a great uh, series of videos called That the World May Know, and there's one called um, Walking in the Dust of the Rabbi, which I really love that whole idea of walking so close behind your rabbi, you get covered uh, in his dust. And um, it talks about how both boys and girls usually, uh, they usually had schooling until they were around 12 or 13 years old, so they learned to read and write and recite. 
so that, and they would all be based around the Torah, the first five books of our Hebrew Bible. Um, then girls would likely move on to marriage and motherhood. They got married a whole lot younger uh, than they do today. And boys would move on to the family business, learning a trade. Um, only a few boys had the passion and the ability to move forward and continue their study. Um, and, you know, there was larger cities around, cities that had universities, but Jesus didn't go to those. Jesus went out to these fishing villages and called his disciples out of these kids that had, like these boys that had flunked out of rabbi school, basically. Um, and so these were small towns, you know, maybe of a, less than a thousand people, would have had a synagogue and a small school. Um, Peter, Andrew, James, John, and Philip would have all grown up together. So lots of the disciples actually knew, knew each other. Um, and traditionally, a student would approach a rabbi and say, I'd like to learn under you. But Jesus flipped that around, and he went and approached them and said, hey, come, follow me. Um, and as I shared last week, the teachings, the rule and lists of a rabbi were called a yoke. Their students had to memorize all of this knowledge. But Jesus said, my yoke is simple and easy, which is really helpful for boys who have flunked out of rabbi school to know that they're not going to have to learn all these rules and lists in following Jesus. And following a rabbi wasn't something you just did on Sunday. It was a, you lived in community with your rabbi. You were learning what it was to live like him. Uh, so this morning I want us to have a bit of a look um, at what we know about Peter in the New Testament. Um, I love the story of Peter, like far out. What a story of redemption. Um, so he, by this time, uh, Peter, uh, David read out this morning's passage. So Peter had already met Jesus and here he's hearing Jesus' teaching. Um, Peter is exhausted. They've fished all night. They've finished a long work day. They've washed their nets. They're done. They're ready to go home. Um, and Jesus tells them to cast out again. And it's a strange request, especially because the nets that they had were made out of linen. And whilst at night, the fish couldn't see them. The fish could see the nets during the day, which makes this whole miracle of catching the fish just even more crazy. Like, the fish could see the nets. But Peter obeyed, even though it seemed like a really weird request. Obviously, he had heard enough of Jesus to go, I'll give this guy a shot. Being a Christian for us in recent history it has often been about holding certain beliefs and certain doctrines. But that's not actually what being a disciple was all about. Being a disciple was more than acquiring the knowledge of a rabbi. It was about wanting to be like the rabbi, not just knowing what he knows. You know, we can know what Jesus taught as a teacher, but he was more than a teacher. You know, Simon had met, teacher, uh, met Jesus, he had heard him preach, um, and when Jesus tells Peter to cast out their nets again, he addresses him as teacher or master, depending on what translation you're reading, but the word is the same. After they pull up their miracle of fish, Peter addresses Jesus as Lord. So there has been this shift, this epiphany uh, in Peter. Uh, then in John 6, there was this crazy passage that I read again the other day, and went, well, I feel like I've, I know I've read this before, but boy, seeing this in fresh light. Uh, Jesus ups the ante in John 6. He's just fed thousands of people. Um, he takes off into the mountains because they want to. He can see that they're about to want to try and make him king. Like it's all getting a little bit out of hand. Um, that night, he casually walks across the stormy lake to you know catch up with the rest of the disciples. Um, and then the next morning, they'll catch up with him, and they're demanding. The people are really quite rude, demanding signs and miracles of Jesus, demanding you know a miracle like manna. Uh, and he declares that he is the bread of life. And the people are like, what? Isn't this Mary and Joseph's son? Like, we know them. This is weird. What is he talking about? Uh, and then Jesus starts talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. What? Like, 
how do you even process that? You know, like you know he's talking about cannibalism. Is this seriously the same guy that was, you know, this miracle the day before? Confuses everyone, angers a whole bunch of people. And it says in John 6, it says, Many of his disciples said, This is very hard to understand. How can anyone accept it? And it says, At this point, many of his disciples turned away and deserted him. Then Jesus turned to the twelve and asked, Are you also going to leave? Simon Peter replied, Lord, to whom would we go? You have the words that give eternal life. We believe and we know that you are the Holy One of God. In Ronald Rollheiser's book, Sacred Fire, he puts Peter's response this way. He said, yes, I would like to walk away, except that I know better. What I've just heard, I don't get, and what I get, I don't like. Except I know deep down that I'm better off not getting it with you than getting it some other place. And so, you know, have you ever had it in your life where Jesus has kind of come through and broken the paradigms? And there's this point where we need to go, yeah, okay, I'm all in. I don't, I, don't, I don't know where we're going with this, God, but I'm all in. I'm better with you and not getting it than getting it somewhere else. And then uh, later on in the story in Luke 22, we read that soon after Peter declared that he'd followed Jesus, even to prison and even to death, that he denied Jesus three times. And it says, At that moment, the Lord turned and looked at Peter, Suddenly the Lord's words flashed through Peter's mind. Before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you would deny three times that you even know me. And Peter left the courtyard, weeping bitterly. At this point of the story, Peter's a broken man. The shame and sorrow would have been real. Then in John 21, we have the story of when Jesus appears to the disciples for a third time after his death. He had already appeared personally to Peter, but we don't have a record of what was said in that, that time. Um, and I've heard messages that talk about, oh, the disciples, they just went back to fishing because they weren't being faithful and waiting for Jesus. But actually, it says in Matthew, um, in Matthew 28 that Jesus sent a message to the disciples saying, go to Galilee and wait for me there. So the weather was supposed to be. Um, so here's Peter, three times he's denied Jesus. And here they are sitting on the beach. They've eaten breakfast. They've had this crazy encounter. They jump off their boats. Jesus is on the shore. They're sitting around the fire. The disciples were no doubt watching this conversation between Peter and Jesus. And Jesus asked Peter three times if he loves him. Um, if you've been watching the Chosen series, like they're not at this bit of the story, obviously, yet in the Chosen series. But like, I know when they get there, this is going to be like the one that like destroys me. Um, uh, Jesus then gives Peter his instructions, feed my lambs. Jesus is the shepherd and he's entrusting Peter with his flock. And then he tells Peter how he's going to die. He says, I tell you the truth. When you were young, you were able to do as you like. You dressed yourself and went wherever you wanted to. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and others will dress you and take you where you don't want to go. Jesus said this to let him know what kind of death, uh, by what kind of death he would glorify God. And Jesus told him, follow me. I love that, that the invitation, it's like this is actually the cost that you personally are going to pay for following me. And at that point, Peter's like, yeah, I'm in. He's in. It's a profound yes. He knows that he will die for this cause. And he did. Uh, it said that Peter was crucified upside down uh, because he could not die with the same dignity that, you know, like he, he couldn't die the same way as Jesus. So he, was, um, he wasn't worthy to, to be crucified upright. He was crucified upside down. Um, our Christian history is full of courageous Christians who have said yes, even when it meant certain death. Um, I've been reading this book um, 
called Water from a Deep Well for a while. Um, and it's kind of about the diversity of Christian spirituality over the last 2,000 years, the way it's looked in different groups. Um, and some of you may have heard of Polycarp. Um, and I'll just read you his story. Um, as the story goes, a mob which had already put several Christians to death started to call for Polycarp's death too, for he was a well-known leader in the region. His friends persuaded him to withdraw from the city, and he complied, finding a place to hide in the country. Writing an account of the story in the 4th century, Eusebius notes, there he remained with a few companions, devoting himself night and day to constant prayer to the Lord, pleading and imploring, as he had always done, that God would grant peace to the churches throughout the world. Officials eventually hunted him down and transported him to the city and ushered him into the arena, where a huge crowd began to call for his death. As the account reads, a voice from heaven cried, Be strong, Polycarp, and play the man. The proconsul pressured him to deny Christ and to swear to Caesar, but Polycarp refused. For 86 years I have been his servant, and he has never done me wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? Swear by Caesar's fortune, the proconsul shouted. If you imagine I would swear by Caesar's fortune, as you put it, pretending not to know who I am, I will tell you plainly, I am a Christian. The proconsul threatened, I have wild beasts, I shall throw you to them if you don't change your attitude. Call them. If you make light of the beasts, I'll have you destroyed by fire. The fire you threaten burns for a time and is soon extinguished. There is a fire you know nothing about, the fire of judgment to come and of eternal punishment, the fire reserved for the ungodly. But why do you hesitate? What do you want? Polycarp has confessed he is a Christian, the proconsul announced to the crowd. This fellow is the teacher of Asia, the father of the Christians, destroyer of our gods, who teaches members of people not to sacrifice or even worship. Um, so it says, enraged, the crowd called for his death. They bound Polycarp to a stake, stacked wood around him, and set it on fire. Meanwhile, Polycarp prayed, I bless thee for counting me worthy of this day and hour, that in the number of martyrs I may partake in Christ's cup to the resurrection of both so, uh, soul and body. And like that's obviously really extreme. Um, yeah, we're not called to a Sunday faith. Um, so the author of the book, he said that discipleship implies suffering, leads to persecution, tests metal, demands steadfastness, requires endurance, and leads even to death. It demands that we confess Jesus as Lord. And he goes on to say, whilst not every Christian is called to be a literal martyr, obviously not, that's not how it's ended for every Christian in the last 2,000 years, we are called to surrender our lives to God. Uh, and then in Acts 10, there is another shift, paradigm shift for poor Peter. Um, God cruises on through with a bulldozer. Uh, until this point, the gospel had only been presented to, Je uh, to Jewish people. There was a man called Cornelius. He was a Roman army officer, and he had this angelic vision telling him to send men to Joppa to find Peter. And Peter also has this incredible vision uh, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to him. It says that when the men came, he's still like trying to figure out what is, you know, what is this thing that God has given him. Um, Peter told him, he says, you know it's against our Lord's for Jewish men to enter a Gentile home like this or to associate with you. But God has shown me that I should no longer think of anyone as impure or unclean. And then the Holy Spirit fell upon everyone who was listening to Peter, sharing the good news of the gospel. God asked Peter to set down everything he knew that to be true. He would have grown up with these beliefs that you should not, you know, Jews and Gentiles don't get to mix in such a way. They don't eat together. They don't um, hang out in one another's homes. 
Um, and it was so radical that he had to explain his actions to the other believers in Judea. And when he explained it, they all just broke out praising God. Um, and then word gets to Jerusalem and they send out Barnabas. You know, it's a two-week walk. So, you know, some bit of time has gone on here. Like, this is, this is a big deal. He comes out to find out what is going on. And from that point, evangelism shifted in the early church. And it was a significant landmark, really, for the story of the church. Peter was challenged with what was right and important and committed to the kind of life that was required to spread the gospel. Dallas Willard says in his book, Spirit of the Disciplines, the general human failing is to want what is right and important, but at the same time not to commit to the kind of life that will produce the action we know to be right and the condition we want to enjoy. This is the feature of human character that explains why the road to hell is paved with good intentions, we intend what is right, but we avoid the life that would make it a reality. We have good intentions, but we fail with the intentions uh, that get us there. Uh, in his book, The Road Less Travelled, um, M. Scott Peck, he says, There are many people I know who possess a vision of personal evolution, yet seem to lack the will for it. They want and believe it is possible to skip over the discipline to find the easy shortcuts to sainthood. Often they attempt to attain it by simply imitating the superficialities of saints, retiring to the desert or taking up carpentry. Some even believe that by such imitation they have really become saints and prophets and are unable to acknowledge that they're still children and face the painful fact that they must start at the beginning and go through the middle. Simply put, belief alone doesn't make us spiritually mature. It takes abiding takes going back to the beginning and becoming an apprentice. Um, and it's not about striving. Like, I don't want anyone to be like, oh, it's about striving. Um, no, 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 this is about abiding with our rabbi, with our Lord. So it's not a one-time call for us. I think with Peter, we watch, look at his story, and this wasn't a one-time call. He didn't get called, and then the rest of his life he was just plowing on through. Like, there was multiple times, and I think we have that. This is so it's not just us. We say, yes, I believe in this, you know, our statement of beliefs. And yes, I believe in the Apostles' Creed. And, you know, here's what I believe. No, actually, God interrupts our lives over and over again. Um, as, <laughs> yeah, just life with him. So it's about becoming, becoming more like Jesus, enjoying our union with him. This is where discipleship transformation happens. Um, I read this recount in an article recently. It was actually an article on pastoral care, and it, it said that being a pastor is like death by a thousand duck bites. So <laughs> I was like, oh, it was, um, anyway, here's this little recount here. It says, um, a parishioner once said to me, I'm lying in this bed, not sure if I'm going to make it out of this alive, frightened and worried, and Jesus has the nerve to waltz in here and suggest that I ought to single-handedly fund the church's food ministry. As sick as I am, I thought others should be looking after me, not my looking after them. And how did Jesus respond, I asked her. As far as I can tell, he said, I don't care. What did you think you were getting into when you were baptized? Um, and that really challenged me because it's like, yeah, actually, sometimes we do get stuck in that. What, you know, who is looking after me? You know, what about me? God fill my needs and wants when actually sometimes he's calling us to get out of our outside of ourselves, and how can we serve others? How can we be representing him to the world? Our faith is not one of comfort and convenience. That's not what Jesus modeled to us, and that's not what the Christians of the past 2,000 years have modeled to us either. 
Um, so last week, I, there was a call to action with small groups, and thank you, Karen, for sharing about small groups again. I think it's there's one Monday lunchtime, two on Tuesday nights, one on Wednesday night, three on Thursday nights, and then sit and be fit on Friday mornings with Mary Ann. Um, so I encourage you again, you know, in the coming weeks, as we might have to go online, we're not going to be able to meet in big groups. Small groups are going to be really important for us to get to know one another so that people can... Um, we can care for one another, and we can encourage one another. Um, and I love that, was it confession was spoken about at the men's all-in yesterday, like confession, that's kind of a, that's, that's, a, that's a spiritual discipline we don't really want to engage with a whole lot these days. Uh, rather not be exposed, thanks, rather keep those, you know, let's keep our masks on. <laughs> um, yeah, we're not designed to walk this thing alone. Jesus has given us community, if only we would participate in it. Um, and I've been thinking this week about all those I've benefited recently from in my world. There have been people that have been calling me up to be more like Jesus. There have been people who have let me say the quiet bit out loud, you know, the doubts, the fears, the frustrations. There's been some people that have been safe enough to let me uh, ear those. There have been people yeah, just calling me up, and there have been people who have questioned my long-held assumptions, and we need to be there for one another, to be with a group of people that have given them permission to, yeah, you can call me up on that, call, yeah, challenge me on why I believe what I believe, because this is actually more about, this is not just about believing, this is about abiding with him. And so renewal begins with each of us saying, yes, it's not a life of striving. Remember, the yoke of Jesus is light, uh, but it's not without work. Because, you know, oxen, you think of oxen, they might be plowing together, but they're still plowing. There's still work to be done. We're saved by grace, but we're working out, <laughs> working out this thing. And what would it look like if we were a community that was saying yes to God? You know, loving, living lives that are hinting at this future of transformed humanity. What if we were being pockets of heaven wherever we are during the week? Um, and next week we'll have a, look at, a closer look at what it means to be a mature disciple. Um, we don't become mature disciples by accident. There is an intentionality. Um, there are parts of church that we've made the end rather than a means to the end. You know, our Sunday services, small groups, generosity, serving, these things aren't the goal, but they are things that are a bit of a pathway. They can lead to transformation in our hearts. Um, so this morning I'm just going to pray. We're going to have um, communion and worship. Um, yeah, I just uh, invite you maybe just have a conversation with Jesus. Um, I think every surrendering probably needs to be a daily thing, sometimes maybe an hourly thing. Uh, there's a song, actually, it was an old hymn, I Need Thee Every Hour, um, I think far out, sometimes every 10-minute block I need thee, Jesus. So, um, yeah, let's pray. Father, I just want to thank you that your call is a call for life. You are calling us into wherever we are, whether we are um, called to equip or called to teach, called to parent, called to foster, called to uh, reveal your love, called to live a faithful and steady life that Father, you walk that with us. We don't, you don't just you know, give us our instructions and send us off, but that you walk that with us every day. Uh, and I pray, Father, this morning as we come into communion and as we are just remembering what you did for us, Jesus, that we thank you, Jesus, that you modeled the life that you wish for us to leave, that your yoke is easy, your yoke is simple, it is not complicated, it is not full of rules, that if we're just to be with you, that we would be transformed. Thank you, Father. Amen.